Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Cheryl Toth and Mike Sakopoulos, and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. Hey, Tothy, what do you call a physician in a suit? Um, a well-dressed physician? I don't no, know. No, 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 no. A physician in a suit is a defendant. Oh, ouch. Mike, that is a little scary. Now, you lawyers might think that's funny, but I don't think our audience is as amused as you seem to be. Oh, oh okay, okay, F- fair enough. I'll, I'll try to make up uh, to everyone uh, for that that really poor joke uh, with today's interview, Tothy. Okay, that's right, and thank you for that. You've redeemed yourself, Mike, in, in my eyes. Um, you talked with uh, Richard Boothman, an attorney uh, who specializes in risk management and handling professional liability exposure. That's right. Richard Boothman has some interesting and useful advice. But before we get to his fantastic interview, Tothy. Word of the show. Dun, dun, absolutely. Dun. Absolutely. Yep. Okay. Here's our word. Okay. It's an adjective. Okay. Halcyon. Halcyon denotes a period of time in the past that was idyllically happy and peaceful, right? Yeah, and I am just thinking that uh, that phrase, you know, the halcyon days of yore. <laughs> well, <laughs> that, there you go. You know, well, it gives us a way to focus on something pleasant before we talk about lawsuits, which is well, what you're going to do. That That's it. I'm just your little ray of sunshine today, Tothy. You so sure with, that, with that in mind, let's just move straight on into our interview with Richard Boothman. My guest today is Richard Boothman. Rick is an attorney with a specialty in risk management and patient safety. For the past decade, he's been an adjunct professor at the University of Michigan's Medical School Department of Surgery. Rick also serves as a visiting scholar for Vanderbilt University School of Medicine, Center for Patient Safety and Professional Advocacy. Richard Boothman has testified before the United States Senate regarding the Michigan model, which we will discuss in detail during this interview. He's the author of numerous articles and is a nationally recognized expert in the field of handling professional liability claims. Rick, welcome to Sound Practice. Thank you, Mike. So I mentioned in your your introduction the Michigan model, and I think we need to spend some time on that. Can you tell me what the Michigan model is? Sure, and I'll try to whittle it down, but I need a little background first. I was a defense trial lawyer for 22 years in Michigan and Ohio and um, observed over that time a number of things. Uh, One, um, almost every organization during those years, uh, and I think it's still true today, uh, was putting uh, patients and uh, their physicians through litigation uh, only to resolve a very high number of cases on the courthouse steps. Uh, litigation is an agonizing process uh, for everybody but the lawyers um, and uh, extraordinarily expensive. And yet, uh, in, at least in Michigan, uh, fully 97% of cases that are filed actually get settled and settled just short of trial. Uh, by that time, well into six figures uh, of uh, money is spent on costs. Um, but that pales in comparison to the agony and the anguish that we create for our caregivers, especially, um, who are going through this 
kind of odd process or foreign process for them uh, and a process which is very threatening and sometimes quite insulting. Um, so I watched that uh, years after years uh, and I kept thinking to myself, boy, there's got to be a better way. What was another observation was that by the time we got to the courthouse steps, things that we knew or believed about the care, um, as it turned out, the gulf between the patient and the defense side uh, was actually narrowed considerably, which is one of the reasons why a lot of these cases were settled. So I reasoned, I started to think if we could accelerate that process, if we could really say to ourselves, we don't need a courtroom to know if our care met our standards of care or not. Um, and we don't certainly need a bunch of lawyers to know that uh, and paid experts. I mean, there's so many perverse incentives in litigation. Why don't we take control over that, um, uh, that uh, uh, narrative ourselves? So in 2001, after 22 years in the uh, courtroom setting, I had an opportunity to come to the University of Michigan and, and uh, reform the way we were handling our cases. Um, I knew the university to be, and, I, and most of my clients, uh, not just the university, were highly ethical. Um, so I didn't have to worry about that. I certainly didn't bring ethics to the university. But I came to the university in July of 2001, and in the first month, I said to um, uh, all of the leadership there, can we distill our approach down to three simple, uh, understandable principles? Uh, isn't it true that for the University of Michigan and our physicians, that if it turns out our care really did fall below the standard of care, which is just what's reasonable under the circumstances, not perfect. Uh, so if our care was unreasonable and we hurt someone, um, isn't it our ethic and isn't it practical to say that we will move quickly and swiftly to fairly compensate those people who are injured through care that we believe that was substandard to our own expectations? The second principle is absolutely as important as the first, and in fact, sometimes more challenging. And that is, um, if our care was reasonable, no matter how the unanticipated clinical outcome um, uh, turned out to be, don't we owe our caregivers the duty of a vigorous defense? Because we are asking every doctor and nurse and other caregiver to enter into clinical medicine, which is inherently dangerous, um, they cannot control all the risks, and law and common sense only expect us uh, to, to exercise reasonable efforts under the circumstances. The standard of care is not clairvoyance, and the standard of care is not perfection. So this business, which, is, which has become the norm in insurance and, and a lot of organizations of nuisance settlements or business business expedient settlements, I think is a, every bit as toxic as not compensating people who we know deserve compensation. So that's the second principle, that if our care was reasonable under the circumstances, we owed our caregivers a vigorous defense and efforts to avoid litigation short of acting as though we did something wrong. The third was most controversial in 2001, and that was we needed to hardwire um, patient safety improvements. Patient safety is the best risk management. If you're not hurting people, you're not worrying about claims. 
So why not hardwire the lessons to be learned? As a trial lawyer, I was extraordinarily frustrated that I would sometimes pay millions of dollars or, or fight cases in court only to find out that the same problems were surfacing over and over. And I realized that my clients weren't learning anything from the cases I was handling. And there are functional reasons for that. A lot of organizations are fragmented and compartmentalized that safety and quality doesn't talk to risk um, or they don't learn anything from their, um, from their claims histories. But those were the three underlying principles when I went to Michigan. It was remarkable what happened. Um, uh, we basically said um, to our organization, and I will tell you, I made 62 speeches the first year alone. I got on every departmental and faculty meeting I could to explain to the physicians and nurses uh, why, uh, why we needed to look at this differently and take control over the narrative. The Michigan model really distills down to three things. I'm sorry, to eight elements, but the first three things are important. Um, we need to respond not to claims, we need to respond to unanticipated or unplanned clinical outcomes and get to the bedside right away. Most of the seeds of litigation are sown in the first, I would say 24 to 48 or maybe even hours or maybe even the first week. When the patient feels stonewalled or even abandoned because nobody will talk to them out of fear of creating a claim. So the first, the first uh, few elements of the Michigan model are these. First of all, you uh, um, create a pipeline of unanticipated clinical outcomes. I wanna know when something went wrong. I don't wanna know only when something went wrong and we worry that we did something wrong. I just wanted to know Tell me every time a patient's expectations and your expectations um, turned out not to be the case. If somebody got hurt, we want to get to the bedside right away. And then we want to do three things. First, we want to reassure the patient that we're still um, uh, observing that intimate patient-physician relationship. We're still in the saddle with them. We're not going to abandon them. We pledge to them that we will be completely honest once we sort out the details. But in the early going, the important thing is to make sure that their medical needs are being handled and that they know they're, they're not being abandoned. So we want to support the patient in that respect. Secondly, we want to support our caregivers. I think that the care for the caregiver notion um, uh, has been uh, terribly uh, ignored over history, really. Um, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Albert Wu from Johns Hopkins coined the phrase, the second victim, way back in, I think, the early 90s. Uh, I don't care for that concept, the second victim, but we have ignored the fact that caregivers are emotionally impacted by what happens with their patient outcomes also. I think uh, uh, the evidence is crystal clear that um, caregivers who feel safe will render better care. So the second part of that first response is we have to pay attention to our caregivers. Is a physician really suited to go back into the operating room if they've just had a catastrophic experience with a patient? Um, and we, don't, we need to pay attention to that and keep them safe. The third concept is in the early going, in the acute phase, we need to make sure that the clinical environment is stabilized, that nobody else gets hurt while we're sorting out what happened in that 
unanticipated uh, clinical outcome. And then after that, the, meta, the, the Michigan model says, uh, we will do a deep and honest, brutally honest investigation with ourselves, but it's clinical, it's not lawyers. At that stage, we are not asking the question, is this defensible in court? We're asking the question, essentially, are we proud of this care? Physicians determine this. Our own medical staff weighed in on that. Um, these cases would be presented and we would ask clinicians, not lawyers, uh, is this the standard of care? Was this care reasonable under the circumstances? That helped guide the clinical response or the claims response to the patient. So then the Michigan model said, we should be completely open with the patient. If an apology was warranted and move toward an offer of compensation, we would do that without defensiveness at all. We would just step right up and say, we have examined this every way we can, and frankly, we could have and should have done better, and we're sorry that this happened. We're going to, as an organization, move um, to, to do our best to make it right. The Rick, that, that's, let, let me just interrupt you there, because that, that sounds great, but we, we both interacted with a lot of surgeons. And how do you create the culture or make them feel comfortable with coming forth with that kind of, uh, of honesty, there, there's a certain degree of, of self-confidence that is necessary to perform surgeries. And does this, in fact, harm that? I don't want my neurosurgeon second-guessing him or herself uh, mid-craniotomy because of something that some process that they were put through uh, earlier with some unrelated patient. Uh, tell me I'm wrong. So, no, you're not wrong, um, but there's a, more to the story. So you're absolutely right that um, uh, the last thing I want is a, is a uh, cardiac surgeon about to crack my chest and flogging themselves saying I'm not worthy, right? I, I want somebody <laughs> to be uh, very uh, comfortable in that clinical environment. And you're really on to something because... It, especially in the surgical specialties, they have a long-standing history of doing morbidity and mortality uh, uh, conferences, right? Um, some of the other specialties are only coming into that, but surgeons have been doing that for, that's the way they were trained. By saying to them, I'm not worried about a lawsuit. I'm really worried about your own honest assessment as we look back on what happened. Tell me clinically, was, did the care meet your expectations or not? They are completely comfortable in that environment. That is, a, that is a clinical discussion, not a lawyer's discussion. That's the lawyer saying in a sort of a act of humility, I'm not the one controlling this. You're gonna control that narrative and I'm here to serve your interests. So let's talk about that. We worked very hard, every single unanticipated outcome like that, got an internal review. So other members of their department, uh, other peers were asked to weigh in on that once we gathered all the facts. Of course, the doctor involved was asked to weigh in on it. That part of it was very comfortable to them because it's a clinical discussion. Some of the most confident surgeons in the world are the most um, uh, anxious when they get thrown into a legal environment where all the rules are different and they're not in control. Um, we did just the opposite. We said to them, the, actually the mantra was, keep it clinical till we can't. 
And by moving the ownership of that narrative to the medical staff and the doctors involved, a number of excellent things happened. First, they didn't feel like victims. They were the ones telling us what they thought. And secondly, and more importantly, they had an ownership of what went wrong. And that actually stimulated both evidence-related peer review that was not punitive in a sense, and also it stimulated the quality and, and uh, safety efforts behind the scenes so that immediate uh, clinical improvements were fixed, uh, were implemented. Uh, we didn't have to wait till root cause analyses were done uh, in a lot of these because our own investigation with internal reviews, sometimes external reviews, but always clinical reviews is what guided it. Excellent. We've been looking at a lot of things from the provider or physician perspective. Let's shift a little bit to the, the patient's perspective and, and maybe even, even family members. Um, sometimes cases are propelled forward, not by the patient, him or herself, but by angry family members. Have you seen that happen? And how does the Michigan model help with that situation? Not only angry family members, but the neighbor next door who who starts urging someone to believe that their case is worth a million dollars when in fact there's there's a lot more to the story. Um, but what's what's important about that dynamic isn't that we can control um, other people who will weigh in. That's going to happen, and I don't worry about things I can't control. What I can control. Um, is the patient's understanding about what happened right away, as quickly as possible. So when you look at all the research, you know, we, we've, we've actually understood for a very long time what propels families and patients to sue their caregivers. And it is not the label that we've um, uh, branded these folks with for a long time. So for, for when I was a lawyer, for the longest time, we labeled these people litigious, uh, money-grubbing. They're all looking for a financial windfall. It actually turns out uh, that that is a very small part of the whole equation. And we can control what actually drives people to lawyers. The studies have been done in this country, in Great Britain, in Japan, and even Sweden. And the factors are very human, and they transcend national boundaries. There are three factors that drive people to lawyers. Number one, simply getting answers. Human beings are incredibly resilient. When you think about some of the things through history that people have uh, endured, it's, it's amazing as a species that we're pretty resilient. But it is a completely understandable that in order to deal with and process bad things that happen to us, we need the facts. You'd be surprised how many people go to plaintiff's lawyers and say, I can't even get the doctor to talk to me. I have no idea what the heck happened, but it's, this wasn't supposed to happen. And simply the lack of information drives people to lawyers. We can control that. The second factor is uh, something that I saw. I've probably cross-examined, I would say, three or 4,000 people in my career. And I heard this in the vast majority of those cross-examinations when I, when I asked, what led you to go to a lawyer in the first place? Very often, the, the answer was, I didn't want this to happen to somebody else. And I had no confidence that the organization or the doctor even understood what happened, let alone, I couldn't, they would say, I can't live with the notion that somebody else could get hurt like this. 
and I have no vehicle. We would give them no avenue to even be heard short of litigation. That's kind of dumb, uh, really, when you look at it. It's not a question of ethics. It's a question of common sense. Why would we push these people by stonewalling them to lawyers when we can control both of those? The third uh, factor in all of these studies is a sense of accountability, that if there was a mistake, there was a sense of betrayal, um, and, and it makes sense when you think about it. When you realize how intimate that physician-patient relationship is, I mean, as a patient, you're turning over your loved one, you're turning over your body to people you hardly even know. That's a real uh, amazing act of trust that they sense is betrayed when nobody talks to them after they get hurt. And uh, one of the reasons that we would say in the Michigan model, get to that bedside as quickly as possible. I don't want you to try and answer any questions about what happened because these things can be complex, but I want you to reinforce our, our commitment to that patient. That was really an important part of that. And those three factors really led a lot of people to lawyers. It is true that the compensation factor is a part of it. That's especially true in catastrophic injury cases because our country does not have a good social safety net. So a young family with a, with a uh, baby injured at, at uh, delivery um, uh, sometimes can end up in bankruptcy because of that. that. That does happen, but that's a minority of the cases. Very interesting. We've talked about these issues from the provider's perspective, and you did a nice job with the, the patient's perspective and, the, and, and what they're looking at. Let's maybe look at it from a different point of view now of, of technology. Let's shift to technology in the exam room or the OR. How have electronic medical records or the Internet of Things impacted risk management and liability issues for, for physicians? Um, that's a, we could spend quite a couple of hours on that. Uh, I think from a risk management and a um, uh, claims uh, perspective, one of the problems is that so many of the electronic medical record programs are began life as a billing program. Mm. And it's very difficult to um, read the clinical story or the clinical narrative in electronic medical records anymore. Uh, there are so many templates, there are so many pull down menus that um, not unusual that the records aren't exactly accurate. I paid on a case that I sh didn't think was malpractice, um, but the records themselves uh, lacked any sense of credibility because the, because the electronic medical record, it was an early version. There had been a pull-down menu that, that uh, populated the patient's chief complaint. And by the time you looked at that, we said, geez, uh, looks like the physician missed the diagnosis right from the beginning because it was all wrong. Um, so that can complicate things. We want the doctors not to write war and peace in their medical records, but we want to be able to follow, especially when claims come years later, we want to be able to follow the clinical narrative. We want to know what was that physician dealing with? What was the physician thinking about? Why did she... Um, uh, offer this alternative and not other alternatives? What was the content or the value of that patient's discussion? Um, and that becomes, that has become more difficult in the electronic medical record. There's another component that's adjacent to what you're asking about, and it's informed consent. 
in my experience, I think we have grossly undervalued the importance of informed consent. It has become seen as a legal hurdle, and it too often gets equated to a consent form. So as long as the patient signs the operative permit, we're fine. The quality, I think that there is a direct correlation between the quality of the consent discussion and the patient's sense of ownership over their own healthcare decisions and whether or not they go to a lawyer when something bad happens. There is no question in my mind that the more careful a physician is to let that patient understand the options, let them understand the risks, understand that there's no guarantees in medicine, when that patient uh, has had an excellent informed consent discussion ahead of time, uh, they're far less likely to blame the doctor when something goes wrong. They're far more likely to accept the ownership of those outcomes. The electronic medical record has streamlined some of those things, and I think short-circuited um, as, we, as we try to increase the pace of clinical medicine, uh, we short-circuit that whole the importance of that discussion. So pure informed consent cases are actually quite rare. I've only handled a couple of them in my whole career. Um, but the factor of informed consent and whether it is a good predictor of somebody going to a lawyer when they don't like the outcome, I think there's a direct relationship there. And the electronic medical record, I think, is causing us to minimize that, not, not improve it. When we talk about electronic medical records, it seems to me that we uh, get into a discussion of potential breaches, privacy breaches, which we've seen nationally. And certainly studies show that uh, patients have withheld and are withholding information because they don't believe that their information is being securely kept, which is a clinical problem. How do you see the Michigan model, if at all, applying to a breach of privacy type of cases? In some ways, they're separated because with the Michigan model, we're talking about very personal uh, injuries. And with the uh, breach of privacy, we're talking about more strictly regulatory and legal concerns. But they have at their source a common, uh, a common ground. And it, and it is the uh, pledge that we are going to be brutally honest and, and um, uh, transparent with our patients. So when there has been uh, a suspected breach of privacy, uh, I think we have to be as open with the patient in that circumstance as we are when there's been an unanticipated clinical outcome and we, th we think we know why. Uh, that commitment carries over remarkably. You know, the, the legal process, as well as going to the media, one of the, one of the concerns that people have expressed to me is, how can you be honest with a patient? What if it shows up on the six o'clock news? The truth is that the legal process and even going to the media or resorting to things like social media are all expressions of frustration um, for a failure to have that open and honest relationship and maintain that when things go wrong, whether it's a breach of privacy or whether it's a patient injury. Excellent. If you would say that 2020 so far has been a pleasant year, Rick, I'd like to end our discussion with a look towards the future. Please tell us any trends or predictions you can make for the future of professional liability or risk management as, as we, we move forward into hopefully um, safer and happier times. 
It's interesting you ask that question because I serve as a mediator um, in Michigan and other states, and I've been hearing lately uh, defense people coming to mediation saying, uh, in fact, a woman said to me two weeks ago, I just drove through my subdivision and saw 20 healthcare heroes signs. We're never going to pay on this case, and I'm not worried about it, worried about a jury. <laughs> um, I, I, think, I think that's misplaced because the other side of the coin is that our country is, and most of us are really reeling under economic hardship. And I think there's going to be a great affinity for juries um, who are looking at an injured person, a uh, great affinity to think, oh, there's no social safety net, that person's not now not making any money, this organization uh, should pay uh, in that kind of thing. So I, I think in the trial setting, COVID is, it's not clear what's going to happen, but we're going to see both extremes. We're going to see um, the physician, from, almost a throwback to the old days, the physician having uh, walks through the door with a, with a real deference um, because we're all in awe of what they do every day. Um, but I do think that there's, there could be a potential downside. COVID has also created, uh, and this has gotten a lot of attention, uh, an in interest in telehealth. And I've been serving on a uh, Institute for Healthcare Improvement um, task force on looking at risks and um, how to improve the use of telehealth. There are some risks. Uh, for the very first time, uh, most physicians who don't do house calls will have a glimpse at somebody's um, home environment. What happens if they see signs of neglect in an elderly patient? What happens if they think that there's someone else in the home who is abusing a child? Um, and, and what are the legal obligations? I think there are some uncharted waters there. What happens if you look at someone's um, home environment and think, uh, oh my gosh, it looks like cocaine on the table, you know? Um, so there are affirmative legal obligations that, that may arise where a physician has reason to believe that what they're seeing in that environment uh, actually can, can um, uh, signal harm to a patient. There are obvious privacy problems. When you have a patient in your relatively sterile clinical environment, you know who is in that room and who's listening. You have no idea who's in the kitchen listening to that conversation. And worse, in underserved populations that don't have access to internet, uh, we heard reports of people going to McDonald's and actually doing their clinical interviews or their clinical televisit from a McDonald's. There's some pretty interesting privacy issues there. Can, can we just pause and acknowledge the irony of going to the place where you would eat a Big Mac to uh, seek health care? Isn't that funny? Uh, <laughs> it, it, it is. Um, th these are strange times. So, I mean, those are the things that come to mind. But Well, I greatly appreciate your, your thoughts and your uh, tremendous insight and knowledge from your your great experience. The Michigan uh, model has been uh, held up over time and is popular in, in many areas. And you are in large part to thank because of that. Um, so my guest has been Richard Boothman. This is Sound Practice. And I thank you very much for your time, sir. Thank you, Mike. Wow, Mike. Richard really did have some great advice and um, perspective. And his discussion of that um, Michigan model was particularly interesting and great.
I agree with you. It's certainly a much more reasoned and humane approach to handling uh, medical malpractice than what we what we usually see, Tothi. So uh, hats off to uh, to Richard. Absolutely. And uh, with that, Mike, we are we are complete. That concludes another episode of Sound Practice. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed our interview, which with Richard Boothman. If you did, please consider rating us on our website, soundpracticepodcast.com, or on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Yes, we would really, really like that. Just takes a couple of minutes out of your very busy day. And if you'd like to give us feedback directly or make a suggestion about the podcast, you can always email us at feedback at soundpracticepodcast.com. Please join us next time on Sound Practice. Don't forget, we release a new episode every other Wednesday. You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Man and Robin, Rick Kapow.